If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christian for Liberty Network. This weekend, every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. So for today's episode, you're going to shortly after this introduction here a interview I did with Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. Dr. Rechtenwald recently announced his bid to get the Libertarian Party's nomination to run for the President of the United States in 2024. Rechtenwald is a prominent libertarian thinker and writer, has his own podcast as well. He's written like a dozen books. He's a former Marxist, and he is a Christian as well. And so we had a conversation about the presidential campaign, talked about his view of the compatibility of libertarianism and Christianity, as well as you know his evolution in his political developments from his years as a Marxist to where he is now as an anarcho-capitalist in the you know Misesian school of libertarianism, and talked about kind of the key issues facing Americans today, the issues he's going to focus his campaign on, why he decided to run, as well as, you know, answering some of the issues that Christians will probably commonly have with libertarianism. You know, primarily we talked about the libertarian and Christian approach to the topic of abortion, um, which is something, of course, that I've talked to Kerry Baldwin about, and Kerry Baldwin does great work on Michael through uh, some good observations and things in there that I think build upon the points and arguments that that we've previously made as well. So again, I think it was a really good episode, obviously, as always, just the disclaimer that Libertarian Christian Institute does not endorse any political entity or candidate, and this episode should not be construed as that. I like Michael. I think he's a great voice and a great figure in the movement, and I wish him well in waking a lot of people up. And obviously, privately, I might, you know, if he were to get the nomination, consider voting for him, but I can't, from the position of the Libertarian Christian Institute, make any official endorsements on behalf of them or on behalf of this podcast. And so this podcast is primarily about just giving him the opportunity to share his positions, share his ideas, and have a conversation that is educational in purpose and promotes the values the Libertarian Christian Institute and this podcast want to promote and espouse. So with all that out of the way, please listen to this podcast. And if you like it, Always remember to like, share, subscribe, leave a review. If you can, if you want to consider making a donation, if you make a monthly donation of $10 or more a month, you can become an LCI insider, which opens up the door to a lot of perks, including behind-the-scenes conversations with LCI staff and podcast hosts such as myself, discounts on merchandise, and a whole lot of other things. So you can find all that out in the links in the show notes section. With that, here's my conversation with Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. Dr. Rechtenwald, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. 
to start out here, could you introduce yourself to my audience? A lot of my audience who are libertarians are probably going to be very familiar with you. But for you know Christians and for those who just haven't, maybe aren't as familiar with your work, if you could go a little bit into your background you know, as an academic and the things that you've produced, you've written several books and stuff, and just kind of share that with the audience, and then we can dive into the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I was a professor for 25 years, 11 of them at NYU. Interestingly enough, my scholarship focused on 19th century British science and culture and increasingly was focused on the topic of secularism. So that could be something interesting to to talk about. And so I was a professor at NYU. My background includes PhD at uh, Carnegie Mellon, uh, MA, Case Western, BA, University of Pittsburgh. I've written 12 books, including five of them from a libertarian perspective. And those are Springtime for Snowflakes, Beyond Woke, Google Archipelago, Thought Criminal, and The Great Reset and the Struggle for Liberty. And I've written dozens and dozens of articles. I've been writing for the Mises Institute, and I have a podcast on there temporarily suspended called Rekt, R-E-K-T. Yeah, so what I was, I was a leftist, uh, far left, actually Marxist, and I uh, came into conflict with the woke mob at NYU over some criticisms of social justice and so forth. Little did I know that I was not going to just leave the left, but I would be encountering a full-scale worldview shift, a total gestalt shift, thanks to them, largely, because their vituperative and venomous response to some of my criticisms drove me out of the left entirely, made me realize that I was dealing with totalitarians and that I didn't want to be a part of it at all. I instantly became a civil libertarian. And then after research and reading, not only on libertarianism, but on the uh, political criminality of leftism in power, I became and a study beginning with uh, Ludwig von Mises and Mary Rothbard and continuing through to Hans Hermann Hoppe, I became an economic libertarian and then eventually an anarcho-capitalist, so an ANCAP. So that's it in a nutshell. I, could, I don't want to go too much into the details what happened at NYU. It's public record. It's out there. It's getting sure. tired. <laughs> and I've sure. told the story many times. Sure, of course. So you were a self-described Marxist. So I was, you know, back in like 2013 to 2015, a uh, self-described democratic socialist. You know, I was like a big Bernie Sanders guy. And similarly, you know, after 2016, kind of came disillusioned with the democratic establishment. And then you know, I'd always been anti-war, anti-war on drugs, and so yeah. kind of on those civil rights issues, I'd always kind of been more on the libertarian side anyway. But then yeah. when I slowly encountered free market economic thinkers such as Mises and Rothbard, had my mind cha- changed there. Going into that in terms of your experience, you know, what were some of the economic developments and evolutions you went through on that journey? And like, what were some of like the key points or arguments mm-hmm. or like data figures that that helped kind of change your worldview? Because I think it's something I think a lot of people in our 
sphere and stuff, they're, they're not always sure how to like approach talking about these subjects with people on the left when they're trying to do outreach and people think it's impossible. But I yeah. think there's a remnant of people on the left that probably are, you know, not that dissimilar from like how you and I were. And I think they could definitely be reached if we know what arguments to focus on. Yeah, sure. I mean, like you also, I was anti-war. I marched in the war against uh, Iraq. I spoke in New York against it. I was actually what we called in that milieu libertarian communists. I know it sounds very, very oxymoronic, and it is to my ears today, but we actually believed that, and I did too. But the arguments that really struck me came out of first from Mises, and I think his book, Socialism, an Economic and Sociological Analysis, was the first major book that I delved into that really struck me as devastating to socialist ideas. In particular, not just the calculation problem, but the critique of the tactics of Marxism, of Marx in particular, and Engels, how they basically avoided all analysis of socialism by virtue of calling every uh, critic, you know, bourgeois, and uh, by attempting to instead of dealing with the criticism, casting aspersions on the critics. And then I saw that uh, the calculation problem utterly devastates the idea of full socialism, and it really devastates the idea of partial socialism as well. Anytime you don't have uh, prices for the factors of production, you don't have any way of knowing who can, who wants what. And what kind of resources to devote to it. And uh, as such, I realized that what I thought I was a democratic, you know, I believed in democratic socialism like you, but I realized absent prices, there's no, there's the opposite of democratic socialism. You have centralized planning and the consumer has no vote on what is produced. And so it's the opposite of democratic. It can't be democratic. It, It has to be controlled by a centralized planning organization or person. And likewise, it is the, you know, it betrays the very tenets of democratic socialism. And then, of course, I delved into, I had always been a believer in the labor theory of value. And I thought that, you know, profit equaled surplus, the surplus that was extracted from the point of production from workers by the capitalist. And I realized that the whole theory of exploitation on which Marxism is premised is based on a flimsy theory of labor theory of value, which is false. And reading many different explanations for why it's false. First of all, that value is not determined by, is not determined by labor or labor inputs. It's determined in the marketplace. So value is only value when people want something. And and so once you knock down the labor theory of value, then falls the theory of exploitation. There falls the whole edifice of Marxist uh, ideas. Yes, I would agree with that. That was, I think, when I discovered the economic price calculation problem. And then when I finally kind of like understood the Austrian view of the subjective theory of value and and how it debunked the labor theory. Everything else comes crumbling after that. I mean, obviously, I think understanding the Federal Reserve and how 
that plays a role into all of the distortions that I think people like us, like we, we were upset with economic inequality, upset with the rich and powerful elites that kept getting richer and, and, and centralizing more power, but then realizing the source of that isn't capitalism. The source of that is, is corporatism and cronyism right. and the Federal Reserve and the distortion of the markets at the, the center of all of that. Furthermore, I recognize that socialism has never been a ground-up movement. It's always been an elite project, really ushered in and promoted by what I call subversive elites, who aim to s- establish socialism on the ground and monopolies in collusion with the state on top. And I call it corporate socialism. I follow in this language from Anthony C. Sutton, the Hoover uh, Institute scholar who was uh, subsequently, you know, basically thrown out of that institute, canceled, if you were, as it were, because he got too close to the truth about this. He noted that, for example, the Bolshevik Revolution had been funded by Wall Street bankers, that the United States during the Cold War was supplying weapons to the Soviets and technologies that actually were used against American troops in Vietnam. I mean, all this was like, and I realized that, and then he, came, then he used the term corporate socialism to explain it all. And then that clicked into place. And uh, that gets outside of the box where socialists think, you know, they can't imagine that corporate capitalists would actually be promoting socialism, but they do. And they have for a hundred plus years. And uh, yeah, so I could go further into that, but I'll leave that as it is right there. Yeah, no, I think those were really good answers. I also like the observation you made that it's, if we care, you know, about democracy or about the people's right to choose and have a voice that any level of centralized planning, whether it's a mixed economy or a total command economy, it's not choice. It's ultimately that someone is by fiat setting the prices, yes. setting what gets produced, and it ultimately fails and falls apart. So I think those are those are excellent arguments that I think can open the door to to outreach to people who are, I think, see the injustice in our current system, but who wrongly diagnosing what exactly. the source of those problems are. They notice the problems, but they have the wrong diagnosis and likewise the wrong prognosis and prescription for you know for addressing these ills. They think that you have to have more of what they are, what's actually causing the problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the, the, their answer to the problem, which is largely based on what they advocate, is to have more of what they advocate. Right, right, which ultim- ultimately just continues the cycle and makes everything worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've decided to seek the nomination of the Libertarian Party to run for president here in uh, 2024. So talk mm-hmm. to me about that decision, both to run for president and to do it seeking the Libertarian Party's nomination specifically, you know, what led into that and what your ultimate hope and goals are with this campaign. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I've got to be perfectly honest. It was not my idea. I was approached by the Mises Caucus to do it. And actually, I never once even entertained the idea of running for president or let alone any other office. I'm not a big fan of the state. So I really didn't want to become a state employee. But, you know, I've always believed in the Mises Caucus since its inception, spoken many times for them at different events and agree. Yeah, with I, their- saw, I saw you at the uh, 
2021 Mises Caucus Bash in uh, Pennsylvania, which uh, you're also a PA native, right? Out in Pittsburgh? Yes, I'm in Pittsburgh myself. Yeah, yeah. I'm over in York County, so we're not, oh, not, okay. not too no, far well. <laughs> yeah, I know it well. Lived in uh, over in uh, Dick, uh, near Dickinson College there. What's that uh, town? Carlisle. I lived in Carlisle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Off and on for a while in some in the summers and in uh, the weekends when I worked at NYU. But anyway, yeah, so I decided to, th- you know, because uh, I was asked to do it and I uh, believe in the mission. And I think that the state of our uh, society and our economy and our body politic is su- in such a disordered condition. I thought that and they believed in me that I could actually bring the message to the people, to people outside of the LP, and to get people to join the LP, and to get people to run for local office, because the main plank of the campaign is decentralization and nullification. So we're, we're trying to, you know, wreck the regime doesn't mean Michael Rechtenwald will go out and smash the state. It, mean, it means that we will enroll local people to, to work and run for office locally in order to get local power wrested away from the central government and uh, and establish uh, self-determination on the local level. The lower down that we go from the state, you know, the nat- central government to the state, to the local governments and down to the individual, the better are we, we off we are. Yeah, 100%. I'm a, a Mises Caucus member myself, and I, I've always been a fan of their approach of decentralization, nullification at the local level, and the idea of using a presidential campaign to kind of like spread that message to more people and tell them that like, you know, the solutions for problems facing our our country and our society, they're not going to come from Washington, D.C. They're even hard to come by, you know, at your uh, state level, you know, at the Mm -hmm. local level, getting on school boards, your city councils, sheriffs, mayor, and and nullifying all these... Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, nullifying these unconstitutional laws at, at these local levels, I think, is is a great political strategy that that also bleeds into the culture because as you promote that bottom-up, localized approach, mm-hmm. uh, it opens the door to talk to people about the ideas of self-governance and more free market ideas and things with our neighbors and whatnot. Yeah, so, absolutely. So, yeah, we get to build because we don't have a top-down advantage, obviously. The LP stands outside of the two-party duopoly and is unable to get the kind of support from the state that these these uh, parties get. This these brands are basically subsidized by the federal government. The LP has not attained to that status. Likewise, it's difficult. It faces ballot access issues, as you know, and it also faces uh, matching fund disadvantages. Yep. yep. So. We're trying to make that 5% real. I think this election cycle is an excellent one in which to do that because in this cycle, we have really a decrepit opposition in both parties. We're looking at the the obsolescence of American political order. And I mean, not only a geriatric condition, but it's uh, you can see the rot of the empire right in our leaders directly. They are the epitome and the synecdoche, if I might, of that very rot. And I think it's a time that we can get a message out, big time. So what do you, would you say the 
purpose of the Libertarian Party should be? And how do you think your campaign can help bolster that and help continue to move the Libertarian Party in the direction that, you know, I think that the Mises Caucus, since it took over last year, has been trying to transition it to? I mean, obviously, there's that local level. Then there's also, like, you know, I think trying to key in on specific issues and stuff Mm -hmm. that I think the Libertarian Party before the Mises Caucus didn't do a good job of focusing on. Mm -hmm. If you could speak to, you know, what you think the role of the Libertarian Party is, how you think you can help bolster what the party is doing and help to continue those positive changes and what, mm-hmm. what issues need to be focused on. Okay. Yeah. Let's get, I'll talk to the role of the libertarian party first. So, you know, as it stands, we're not set to have a Javier Malay moment, frankly. And so what our role is, is now to stand as a pressure group against the other two parties, especially in the case of the Republican party to, hold them to the fire in terms of their rhetoric regarding the free market, regarding individual liberty and property rights, and to uh, expose the hypocrisy uh, on their part. And then, of course, against the Democrats is to expose their authoritarian slash totalitarian nature and the, 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 the way that they are trying to run a, you know, a virtual dictatorship of the party overall. You know, I mean, they're resembling Bolsheviks more by the more and more by the day. And they're trying to outlaw political opposition. Not that I support that political opposition in the case of the Republicans, but it's still a problem that they're trying to outlaw political opposition. So it proves the totalitarian character. So we need to be the voice of reason and criticism of the current regime. Of course, the issues we stand on are anti-war free market and, you know, and the Fed and uh, peace. You know, we're looking at, Mm. we have to be the party of peace. We want to put the message out there that what we need is not antagonism and foreign entanglements, but peaceful trade with the world. And by setting that standard, the United States could, again, if it ever was, become a beacon for the rest of the world to follow. As it is, we're very much down the road to totalitarianism ourselves. And likewise, we have little to hold out to show the world about how things are best, how affairs are best conducted. You know, we've obviously been the most murderous government on the face of the earth, and it's hard to convert people to your views, especially when you're completely just, you know, you're violating uh, these essential principles on, on a daily basis. So the Libertarian Party has to do that. It has to be that party that speaks to this truth about freedom, about uh, individual liberty, about property, about the free market, about peace, against war, against centralized banking. And we're the only party that, that holds those views. And that has to be paramount. Yeah, I think especially the uh, the anti-war message the, the true anti-war message is really important right now. And there's there's some people out there who are like okay on war. But <laughs> I think we're the ones who are like not, not only like really anti-war, like to the bone, but like we understand how these things keep happening. Like we, mm-hmm. we carrying on that Ron Paul tradition of just like, you know, <laughs> like how many times do we have to learned this lesson that meddling in the affairs of the world and trying to be this, this, 
global empire has consequences and it has predictable blowback. And, you know, even in situations like Russia and Ukraine, it's not just as simple as there's a big country bullying a small country. No, there's so much, there's so many instances of American foreign policy having influence on Mm -hmm. the events leading up to that and Mm -hmm. provoking tensions and conflict. And, you know, something, you know, we, you and I are both Christians and, you know, we're called as Christians to be the peacemakers. And that is not what the American government is doing right now. And we need to, I think as Christians and libertarians, one of the most important things we can do is to call out like your role is to be serving the interests of your people and war is not in the interest of anyone, <laughs> not our people, the not their people. And, and right. we need to be doing everything we can in our position to influence things towards peace. And we're clearly not doing that. No, we're not doing that. And in the case, you know, I mean, these, these people that see Ukraine as an exception, they always find, you know, the current thing as the exception. You know, they're anti-war, but well, not in the case of Ukraine. But they don't realize the degree to which U.S. foreign policy in conjunction with NATO as their kind of proxy weapon have precipitated this particular conflict, have exacerbated it to no end, and are actually threatening the lives of the and of people across the entire globe uh, because they're actually bringing about the possibility of an all-out nuclear war. So this has to be opposed. Uh, we have to tell people why. This is crazy. It'll never work. The plans for Ukraine have nothing to do with democracy. They most likely have to do with trying to orchestrate a coup in in Russia once again to depose a new Hitler as they would every other so-called Hitler that they find to demonize. I'm not saying Putin is a a wonderful person or that the uh, Russian regime is not autocratic. It is. But we're not going to solve that by having a war with them. And the same thing goes with China. We should stop the saber rattling with China. The enemy is within. The enemy here is within. It's the state and it's bludgeoning people the world over and it's bludgeoning us domestically. I agree. It it reminds me, what you just said reminds me of that passage. We don't struggle against uh, flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and the forces of darkness. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, we, you know, as libertarians and Christians, I see so many correlations there. I'd like to get you to talk a little bit on that because I know you're a Christian as well as a libertarian such as myself. And Mm -hmm. I I see a lot of connections there between the gospel message and and the things that we're called to do as Christians and and the the things that libertarian philosophy emphasizes and focuses on. So what are some of the things that that you see and that motivate you in terms of the intersection between those two? Well, I think libertarianism is the most compatible political philosophy with Christianity. And uh, that starts from the idea of the individual having inalienable, unalienable, or inalienable rights that I believe are endowed by our Creator, and that we cannot violate those rights. And that includes the right of property in oneself and then property in one what produces. So that's the first principle. And that, of course, means 
that we don't aggress upon people to either take their property or to kill them. <laughs> Those are both no-nos. They're denied in the you know, Ten Commandments. This is prohibited. And they're also denied by the uh, NAP, the, the non-aggression principle. So I think Christianity, in some sense, is a stronger version of the non-aggression principle. Uh, but it, it's fairly, fully compatible with it. In fact, I think it's the only political philosophy that is fully compatible with Christianity. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I also think there's something to the gospel message in terms of like the recognition of Jesus as our king as well mm-hmm. as our savior. And, and I think that puts the Christian in a position where we at least have to view the kingdoms and nations of this world with a little bit of skepticism to understand that these are in, in many ways like rival kingdoms. Yes. And, and how many times in the Bible did, did we see even godly kings, like, like King David and whatnot, fell into sin and committed heinous sin. So it's like if they couldn't get it right, then I don't have... I at least have to have a healthy skepticism towards, you know, people claiming authority in the here and now. Right. So I, I think that's another thing there. You know, I think a lot of Christians have, you know, probably some libertarian sympathies, but it seems like a lot of evangelicals, you know, typically swing for, you know, the Republican Party and, and tend to make some issues like their issues that they sort of die on or their single issue voters. Abortions probably chief among them, mm-hmm. you know, so I mean, you know, if, if you were speaking to a Christian who's maybe sympathetic to libertarianism, but they go, man, I just, you know, I have a hard time supporting libertarianism or wanting to vote for a libertarian party candidate because, you know, I think we have to vote for Republicans because we have to vote for pro-life candidates who will get in power and legislate against abortion. You know, what do you think the libertarian position should be on abortion, both on a, like, philosophical level, but then also like on a practical policy level, like, you know, what we should be supporting at the uh, state and local level. Well, I can speak to this on those two levels. I believe that I have a Ron Paulian standpoint with reference to this. I think that the current state of affairs, such that Roe v. Wade was overturned and that the question was sent back to the states, is a good step in the right direction. And I ultimately believe that every person has the right to life, no matter what their size is, <laughs> whether they are tiny or large, they have the right to life. And likewise, right. I'm pro-life, but I don't believe in, uh, in pushing a, a pro-life position on people from the state, from the standpoint of the state, that the state can't be arbitrating this. This is a moral matter that ultimately comes down to the individual. and. I don't believe that the state should sanction and fund abortions, which it's currently doing now. Uh, Likewise, the state should have no business in the matter except where people are violating law. And I think it's better that we have this at the state level. I think it could even go down further into the local levels. Uh, Ultimately, uh, to be honest with you, I, I think that we need to come to a place in this country and this world where we recognize the individual and their right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness from the stage of conception and that abortion is immoral and hopefully the nation will finally make it illegal. 
But until that point, I believe it's got to be arbitrated at local levels. And then I think it all really devolves finally to the individual. I will speak against abortion as a principle, as a principal speaker that I think it violates the, the NAP. I don't, you know, I know there are libertarians that believe that, you know, you can look at the fetus as a, as a squatter in the woman's body. But I think that's a highly, 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 uh, very suspect view for various reasons. First of all, the woman did have a part in play in bringing it about. Second of all, that is an individual life, and that, that life deserves every bit of protection it has its, of its rights as any other person. Right. I mean, it's not like the, uh, the baby intentionally put themselves in the, uh, right. the woman's body. It's not like a, they didn't break a stowaway. In. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't so, break uh, in and occupy the territory. Right. Right. Yeah. No, one of my uh, Libertarian Christian Institute co-patriots, Carrie Baldwin, did a debate with Walter Block mm-hmm. on this issue, the Soho Forum, a couple of years back. And I think she did a good job at arguing against that sort of more like evictionist squatter view that yeah. Walter and others make, which I, you know, I mean, and to, to Walter's credit, I think his view is better than the traditional pro-choice view because he at least says, well, you shouldn't kill the fetus. You should just remove it and try to save its life. It's like, what? Yeah. That's a step. Even that What's is the point in that? That's in not the what right they direction. want to do. Yeah. They want to end its life. Right. They, they want to end any responsibility toward it. So right. nobody's trying to save babies from, or save wombs from occupation. That's not the real object. That's not the agenda. No. Yeah, that's not the agenda <laughs> at all. The, the I agenda. Think it's a bloody thirsty, bloodthirsty worship of Moloch, but that's really where I come down. But I'm not going to make that like a campaign slogan. <laughs> and I think that, you know, we need to. I'm glad that Roe v. Wade was overturned. Now it goes to the states. So the states can decide what the terms are, and I urge them to decide against abortion. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation about like, you know, kind of balancing moral principles with what is politically possible and and optimal. And I share that sympathies you have that it's like, I'm morally, you know, pro-life and outraged at every abortion. I also think that in the same way, I don't want to license the federal government to send men with guns across the world to correct to every injustice. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to do that at home and create a, you know, like for to compare it, the war on drugs has been not just a failure, it has created more harm than just the drugs. And I, I'm very skeptical that a war on abortion wouldn't go down the same path as the war on drugs, that it would ultimately not, it would ultimately fail and only create a further distortion of rights, a further Mm -hmm. loss of life while increasing the power of the police state, which is something I think that libertarians should be obviously against. And I think Christians should, you know, after what happened with lockdowns and churches being shut down, they should be, you know, skeptical of giving the state more power um, in in that regard. Yes, I I agree. So the state would drive it into a black market, which would create, uh, more problems and also more police forcing, more repression and so forth. So we ultimately have to leave it at this. Uh, let the states decide. 
and let the individual's conscience effectively guide their actions. And, and we pray, God, that they take the right ones. Yeah. And I think another, you know, one of the things that, again, my co-patriot, Carrie Baldwin, talks about is that, you know, the, the, the better way to combat abortion is not always through the law, although I think there's room for legislation at the local level, but combating it through the free market and the promotion, mm-hmm. of, the promotion of free markets and the promotion of free market solutions often goes a lot further in reducing abortions Agreed. than anything we can do with the law, which again, I think is a, is a Christian perspective too. I mean, yeah. the, the law was unable to change the hearts of the Israelites, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it pointed to our need for a savior and the, you know, no law written by man today is going to change people's hearts. And I think that, I think it's ultimately what the spirit of Christianity is. And I think that's kind of echoed in what like the Mises caucus and what you're trying to do in your campaign is you're not so much trying to start a political revolution that's based on passing legislation to sort of like force change, but rather mm-hmm. it's, I mean, yes, there's nullification at the local level and, and that's all well and good. But I think just as important, if not more important, is starting a revolution that wakes up the minds and hearts of people across this country to to see the truth. And I think yes. that's, at the heart of Christianity is the truth will set you free. And I think about great libertarians like Ron Paul, yourself, people in the Mises Institute, you know, one of the things that that they've always said is that, you know, the most important thing we can do in the face of tyranny is to stand on the truth. Because um, if we don't if we don't have the truth and an understanding of where we are at, we can't correctly diagnose problems and figure out how to solve them. And agreed. I do think the free market would obviate a lot of these questions because why are people undertaking abortion uh, largely because they fear economic consequences that they can't handle? The free market would produce more wealth for more people. It would put more wealth in society and and everyone would benefit from that wealth. Now, would there be, would there be so-called in, in, income inequality? Yes, but income inequality is not is not the nemesis that they make it out to be. This is the biggest conundrum that the people on the left cannot seem to get through their heads. They don't understand that the free market brings about greater wealth for everyone. Does it eliminate income inequality? No. And it shouldn't. That's the thing. It shouldn't, but everybody's, you know, a rising tide does lift all boats. And frankly, that is the truth. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the it wouldn't be a pushback, but I think the nuance there, which is something that Jordan Peterson has talked about, which I agree, is that radical income inequality can be destabilizing. But the issue is that that radical income inequality we have isn't an outgrowth of the free market. It's, it's not, an outgrowth it's not, of... It's not the market. Right. No, it's, it's, it's corporatism. It's, yeah, exactly. it's an outgrowth of corporatism which really is the state in, in collusion with corporations. And their solutions today, uh, especially the Democrats, frankly, is more fascism, more economic fascism, more collusion between the state and corporations. You know, what they're calling public-private partnerships. Of course, that's the language coming from the World Economic Forum. And it's been adopted by governments and corporations worldwide. And that's very sinister. It's a very sinister approach, and it's, it creates the very problems that they s- seek 
apparently seek to solve, although who knows what they actually want. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, maybe the last question we can talk about here, although it, you know, we could almost do a whole other podcast on this, is you know, what do we tell people about like what they should do in response to like all of this stuff going on on the global stage? You have the World Economic Forum, you have the push of these things like ESG and all of that, and this push for like you describe it's like the Great Reset, trying to create control not through necessarily more traditional ways where you would just, you know, compel people through direct force, but rather we trap them through, you know, technological and economical means by mm-hmm. getting everyone on one currency and controlling, you know, hey, you can't buy bread today or you can't drive to work today or anything because of what you said on Twitter or because mm-hmm. you didn't bow or, you know, whatever. It's like, I mean, in, in the Bible, it was if you didn't bow to the king, you get thrown in the fire. Now it's, if you don't bow to the king, you can't feed your kids. I don't know. Yeah, you can't, eat, we, yeah, eat, it's like, can't so, eat meat and you can't uh, drive your car. Right. It's like, what do we do to all this? Because I think some people, including myself sometimes, we can get a little discouraged. Like, man, what, what can we do in the face of this? Is there hope of resistance? And I think there is. I think it starts at the local level. And I'm, I'm sure you yeah. have thoughts on that. Well, yeah. In my book, The Great Reset and the Struggle for Liberty, I actually outline a nine-point plan, and it's called The Grand Refusal. And it's perfectly compatible with localization and decentralization. But the main premise of it is we can't control what these global statist puppet masters are trying to impose on us, but we can control the strings that they're trying to use to pull us with. We can cut the puppet strings from ourselves. This is the only thing we can do, really. So that means to refuse the central bank digital currency, refuse the Internet of Bodies, refuse digital identity, divest from ESG banks and asset managers, practice the free market, localize your economy, build parallel structures, parallel social, economic, and political structures. And all of that together was perfectly compatible with decentralization, but part of decentralization is not necessarily to, it's not necessarily bound to a particular locality. For example, you know, we need parallel currencies. Likewise, Bitcoin, which can be used, it should be able to be used everywhere as a currency, as, as a legal tender. We need to, to build a parallel structures, parallel currencies, parallel economic order. And we can do that on the local level, but can also be done across local boundaries. Yeah, I agree. I think Bitcoin and promoting more economic freedom and independence at the local level is a big help. I think also, you know, promoting, you know, more mutual aid and support, you know, I think churches can be a big, big part of this. You know what I mean? And going back to a, you know, less of a reliance on the nanny state and on the federal government to solve people's problems, but, you know, remind people that like we had a society before we had all of this, you know, government intervention and welfare and all that. And not only did it keep people from starving or from being homeless and stuff like that, it did a better job at it than, yes, it than these current systems do. And without mm-hmm. all the uh, the coercive power that and threats of liberty that we get from this modern state apparatus. Yes. Michael, I really appreciate you coming on today and talking to, with me about all these different topics. Before we go, I wanted to give you a chance to just get any final thoughts out on the issues we talked about and then just kind of tell people if they want to find out more about 
uh, your campaign or find out about like the books you've written and, and the things that you've done, where they can find all of that? Sure. Okay. On the latter point, there's two sources. First of all, to go to the campaign, it's you can just type in wreck-the-regime.com. That's R-E-C-the-regime.com. One word, it'll get you to the campaign website. For my personal business, you can go to michaelrechtonwalt.com. There you find all my books, all of my media appearances, all of my essays. The only thing I charge for are books, and they can also be purchased elsewhere, but you can buy them directly from me. So I practice what I preach in terms of free market and creating parallel structures. So, you know, the final thoughts I would leave is, you know, I'll kind of a white pill here. Look, there's a lot of us out there that think this way. And there are a lot of people that, like you and me, have transformed over the years. And the more people that we find having done that, and the more we can help precipitate doing that, transformation or bringing that transformation about, the greater the chance we have for a society of liberty. And so it's not too late. We can rescue the vestiges of a liberty-minded society and build on it. It's not going to be easy, but it is pretty simple. That is to say, there's very simple principles that we need to follow, and we can do it. And I'm trying to lead a charge not to bring me into the presidency or get Michael Rechtenwald to wreck the regime. You know, it's not a top-down thing. This is a bottom-up revolution. We need to build from the ground up. And if you're interested in saving the republic, that's the only way to save the republic. If you're interested in saving the free market and society and liberty, that's the only way to do it, I believe. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Dr. Rechtenwald for joining us today. Thank you, those of you who tuned in and listened, and we will talk to you again in a couple weeks. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.